Our reading today is from Mark chapter 9, if you want to follow along. We've got uh, some real Bibles over there, paper Bibles over there, where you can follow on your smartphone. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. And uh, today, we are thinking about the beauty of Jesus. We just sung a song, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. And we're looking at the beauty of Jesus in the story of the transfiguration as a bit of a base for us. So Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. And led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And, in, and Father, we pray that in these few moments here, you would speak to each one of us. Wherever we might be at in life, wherever we might be at, with you at the moment, would we see Jesus in his beauty. Amen. So as we think about this thing, we're also beginning a a new series called This Is Us. And uh, we're thinking really about what's important to us uh, as a church. I'm aware that over the summer, uh, new people will have joined. And if you're new uh, to Holy Trinity, then it's really lovely to have you here. Really warm welcome. And uh, autumn is a good time for a bit of a reset just to kind of remind ourselves what we're doing here, what are we about uh, as a church, as a people, to talk about the main and the plain. Uh, I wonder if you're the sort of person that likes lists. Do you like lists? I like lists as much as the next person. My wife, Lydia, absolutely loves lists. Nothing makes her happier, it seems. Uh, She's the sort of person that will... uh, do a task, and then if it's not on her list, she'll write it on her list just for the joy of ticking it off. Does anybody else do that? She loves lists. But the thing is with lists is that we can write everything down that we need to do, but then there's a second step, isn't there? We need to prioritize. We need to put what's most important at the top. And in this series, we're doing something like that. We're saying this is what is really important to us as a church. This really matters to us. And today, 
I get to speak on the theme. If I wanted a heading, it would be the heading, Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center of this church. Jesus at the center of our lives. There's an old worship song that came from the Vineyard Movement uh, back in the good old days of the 90s uh, called Jesus Be the Center. Maybe you remember it, a beautifully simple yet profound song of surrender about reordering our lives. It says this, Jesus be the center, be my source, be my light, Jesus be the center, be my hope, be my song. Jesus, be the fire in my heart, be the wind in these sails, be the reason that I live. Jesus, Jesus be my vision, be my path, be my guide, Jesus. And that's who we want to be at Holy Trinity. We want to see Jesus at the center of every life, a life transformed through his incredible love and relationship with him and through his life, death, and resurrection to see our lives transformed. We want to see Jesus at the center of every marriage in this church, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken, as the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. And when we have Jesus in a marriage, that example of self-sacrifice, his guidance, his wisdom, above all his love as the foundation, then that will make for a great marriage. We want to see Jesus at the center of every family, the joy of Jesus and the much-needed grace of Jesus for those stressful moments. We want to see Jesus at the center of our local area, our city, and our nation. We're here to join in God's great mission to make Jesus known, not to make ourselves known, but to make him known. We want to see Jesus at the center. Let me put it another way. Our vision, if you go on our website, you look for our vision. Our vision is to see God's kingdom come in Sydenham and Forest Hill and across southeast London. And at the center of the kingdom is who? At the center of the kingdom is the king. We live in a world, it's been said, that wants the kingdom of God without the king. We want the benefits of the kingdom of God, all the good things that the kingdom brings. We want heaven on earth, but we don't want the king. That's the world that we live in. But we want to be a church that really does see the kingdom of God come, where Jesus is on the throne. He is worshipped, and it's his rule and reign that comes to bear in our lives. And as I'm saying all this, you might be thinking, well, okay, Ben, but isn't this all quite obvious? I mean, we're a church. Of course, you're going to be talking about Jesus. We're a bunch of Christians here, or many of us will be Christians here. Of course, you're going to be talking about Jesus. It's kind of like the obvious Sunday school answer, isn't it? Uh, There's the old joke where the Sunday school teacher asks uh, their group, what a small gray has a bushy tail and eats nuts? And uh, the child raises their hand and says, well, it sounds an awful lot like a squirrel, but I know the answer must be Jesus. Isn't it obvious that it's all about Jesus? But I want to ask this morning, is Jesus at the center? Is he at the center of your life at the moment? Is he on the throne? Or does someone or something else take that place? Is he your first love? 
at the moment. You know, it's easy to drift, isn't it? To, be, to a place where we don't want to be. I grew up down by the sea near Bournemouth, a fantastic place to, to grow up, particularly in the summer, and I loved being by the sea. And sometimes we'd go um, into the sea with some mates uh, and we'd, we'd be out there for some time. And if the current was strong, you'd come out of the sea onto the sand and you'd look around and you'd be looking for where you put your clothes and your towel and that sort of thing, and you couldn't find it. And it looked a bit different from when you went in. And that's because we had drifted. And I think we can all do that with our hearts. And what's important, the Bible warns us again and again about the big drift. It's one of the big threats to the Christian life. Delay, distraction, and drifting is some of the biggest enemies against the kingdom of God coming to bear on our lives. And churches can drift. We can drift away from having Jesus at the center. Sometimes a church can be built not around Jesus as the cornerstone or its head, as the Bible encourages us, but around a celebrity pastor and their ministry, a particular individual. It becomes all about that individual. And over the last few years, we've had some dramatic falls from grace of well-known pastors Maybe there's a lesson to be learned there. Or maybe the church just becomes about itself. It becomes about the institution itself or its traditions or this is the way we do things and we can suddenly lose sight. We get occupied with the running of the church rather than what the church is meant to be about, being the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's all about Jesus. And as individuals, we can all drift, if we're honest. I can drift and you can drift. As just over time, other things take that place in our hearts. Our work becomes most important. Money, sex, romance, you all know what it is for you. And so, as we look at this passage just for a few moments... I want to ask, what does it look like to have Jesus at the center? What might it look like to have Jesus at the center of our lives? And kind of inspire us, really, with that picture of where we might be going. So the scene is that Peter, James, and John are led up a mountain with Jesus. These are, these are kind of like, uh, this is kind of Jesus' prayer triplet, if you like. Uh, So Jesus had his church, which was like the 72 that he went around with. He had his connect group, which was the 12. It's a really good model for us. You come on a Sunday, you're in a connect group, but he also had a prayer triplet, Peter, James, and John. And uh, they did everything together. And he takes them up a mountain. And the mountain's kind of a sign that says, I'm going to reveal something to you that you don't know already. Mountains in the Bible are, are... places of encounter and places of revelation. It was on the mountain that Moses met God in the burning bush. It was on the mountain that the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. It was on the mountain that Elijah heard the still, small voice of God. Mountains are signs that something's going to happen. I'm going to reveal myself to you in some way, God is saying. And that's exactly what happens here for a few beautiful moments, Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus in his heavenly glory. 
It's like the curtain is pulled back. We live in two realities. We have the reality of the earth that we see around us, we see with our physical eyes, but then there's a spiritual reality going on all the time, the reality of heaven. And as we live as Christians, we want more and more to be able to tune into what's going on in the heavenly realms, the spiritual realms. And here, Peter, James, and John see that so clearly. They see Jesus in his heavenly glory. We're told that he's dazzling white, whiter than Daz, even whiter than any bleach could make his clothes. Mark is telling us this isn't an earthly glory. This is a heavenly glory. He shines with the light of heaven. Elsewhere in the Bible, light is used as a picture of the heavenly glory of God. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of the Lord, the Ancient of Days, is shining bright as white. His hair is white. In Revelation, we're told we don't need a sun or a moon because the light comes from the Lamb. It comes from Jesus. And here Peter, James, and John see Jesus in his heavenly glory. He's the king of heaven. And then Moses and Elijah are there. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of both. Jesus, the longing of the nations, the longing of our hearts, the the person that the whole Bible is written about was there. Everything points to Jesus. And then we're told that Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? Well, Luke's account of this story tells us that they're they're talking about Jesus' exodus. In other words, they're talking about the cross. When Jesus would be seen in his glory most clearly in a way as he saves his people from the slavery of sin and darkness and death and into the light of new life and being children of God and the hope of heaven. This was Jesus in his glory. And so, just briefly, three little marks for what it means to have Jesus at the center. The first thing I see is that when Jesus is at the center, we don't want to leave his presence I wonder if you noticed verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It is really good to be here. That's what Peter's saying. And he wants to prolong the experience. He wants it to continue. He says, let's put up some tents. Let's not just let this moment be a fleeting moment, but let this carry on for some some more days and weeks. Would this just carry on? Because this moment is beautiful. He wants to dwell. He wants to dwell in the presence of Jesus in his glory. Having Jesus at the center means that we have this longing for his presence. We thirst for him. We, we, we hunger for him. We're desperate to be with him because he is the one that ultimately, ultimately satisfies our hearts. Jesus says in John's gospel, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you drink, and you'll never thirst again. He's the one that our hearts are made for. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you thirsty for peace and contentment and joy? And maybe you've been trying other things. We all do this. 
Maybe this morning is about coming back, looking to Jesus as that fountain from which we drink. When we're in the presence of Jesus, we don't want to leave. And we can see this as we look at the history of revivals. One of the marks of revivals uh, is that uh, as people gathered, that they would gather and spend hours and hours in worship and in prayer and in the presence of God. And as if time just became irrelevant because they so loved what was happening. This, even this year, we've had a revival. I wonder if you heard about the Asbury Revival in Kentucky uh, at a university uh, out there. And uh, it was a Christian university, and they'd have chapel services every week. And this particular Wednesday in February, uh, rather than everyone uh, leaving this chapel, there was a group of students that stayed by the altar. They just lingered there. And then the people leading worship just continued to lead worship. And they sensed that something special was happening. The presence of Jesus was there. And so people started texting around, something's happening. And people gathered back into the chapel. And that worship and that prayer just continued hour after hour, through the night, day after day. And word got out. And uh, in time, thousands of people flew into this tiny town in Kentucky. The The town couldn't contain all the demand that was there. Because the presence of Jesus is just so worth being in. If we're a church of Jesus at the center, we love his presence. But if we're honest, we don't always want to be with Jesus. Sometimes our hearts are cold. That's certainly true for me. But what I've found is that the more I make time to be with him, the more I want to be with him. And the more I delay, the less I want to be with him. And one of the ways that we can make time, uh, we can pursue God's presence, we can do this, is to make time to be with Jesus each day. Just make it part of our routine. We've been doing that uh, as a connect group. Uh, just one of the challenges that we've had for each other uh, over the past few weeks as we're thinking a little bit about prayer is to set aside five minutes to get our phones out, to set a timer for five minutes and spend five minutes each day in the presence of God. And what I find when I do that is I sit down and my mind's occupied with all sorts of things, uh, anxieties and worries, things that I've got to do. But after a while, God's presence comes and at the end... The five minutes goes very quickly, and I don't want it to stop, and it changes my day. We can all do that. We can all spend time with Jesus through his spirit and through his words. We hear him speak to us. For a church that has Jesus at the center, we love his presence. And then the second thing I notice is that they are utterly amazed by Jesus. Verse Six. Peter doesn't really know what to say because he's so frightened, but he says something anyway because he's an extrovert and he just does that. I love it. But he's frightened. And there's this concept in the Bible I think it kind of points to, which is quite unfashionable now. It's kind of seen as old-fashioned, I guess, but it's in the Bible. And I think God is calling us back to it. It's the concept of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of 
wisdom. And when we talk about having a fear of the Lord, we're not talking about being afraid of God like destructive religion would have us believe, that we're scared of God like he's some sort of uh, judge, uh, scary judge or head teacher uh, or prison officer or someone looking for, for us to trip up. We're not afraid of God, but we're in wonder and awe at God and who he is. And I think this is what's happening with Peter and James and John, they're amazed at his glory, and so they're afraid. I guess something similar might be that if I've had the privilege of going to the Alps, if you've been to the mountains or some incredible landscape, and it's just so big, and it's just, it seems so powerful, you're just kind of in awe, but there's a, there's a, there's a kind of fearful awe uh, about where you are. I think Peter and James and John are in that place. They are utterly amazed by Jesus. And in the Gospels, again and again, it says that the people were amazed. The people were amazed when Jesus revealed himself in some way, when he did miracles, when he taught, they were amazed. Pope Francis puts it like this, the fear of the Lord, the gift of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean being afraid of God, since we know God is our Father who loves us and forgives us. It's no groveling fear, but rather a joyful awareness of God's grandeur and a grateful realization that only in him do our hearts find true peace. I think God is calling us back to a fear of the Lord, to be amazed by Jesus and his grandeur and his beauty. And when we do that and we place Jesus at the center, we're invited, or it brings about a wonderful, liberating self-forgetfulness because we realize, really, it's all about him, and it's not about us. In the 16th century, uh, there was uh, a revolution that happened called the Copernican Revolution, uh, a massive shift in astronomy where Copernicus realized that the universe revolved not around the earth, had been, as had been believed up until that point, but around the sun. It's a big shift in thinking. And when we become Christians, in a sense, that's what happens to us. We realize that the world doesn't revolve around us. We're not at the center of our universe anymore. But Jesus is at the center of the universe. It's the opposite of sin. Sin, Luther said, was man curved in on himself. But the posture of a Christian is to gaze at Jesus. And it's incredibly freeing. The pressure's off. Life isn't all about us. And anxiety and fear flee because we know how great Jesus is. And if he's with us and we are in him and he's in us, then we don't need to be afraid. C.H. Spurgeon once said, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self onto Jesus. Satan's work is the opposite. To this, Satan is constantly getting us to look at ourselves rather than Christ, but we will never find happiness in this way. It's when we look at Jesus that we find rest for ourselves. And so, if we're going to be a church with Jesus at the center, we're going to have this fear of the Lord and be amazed by him. And then finally, they listen to Jesus. What does the voice of the Father say? A cloud appeared And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. We want to be a church who listen and follow the voice of Jesus in our lives because we know that good things result 
when we do, and God has good things for us. And things tend to go wrong when we think we know better, and we don't obey, and we don't follow. And we all do that all the time. I do that all the time. And God is full of grace and forgiveness when we do. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. Jesus is talking to us all the time. I remember a number of years ago now when we were uh, in Ikea at the checkout. And um, we, it was quite a long queue. And we got to the lady just in front of us. And I just felt a prompting from the Holy Spirit saying, you should pay for that lady's shopping. And my initial reaction was, but I have no idea how much that's going to be. And I don't know if we can afford that. So I had this like dialogue with God. And in the end, if I'm honest, we, I didn't. I didn't offer to pay. And that's an example of hearing God's voice but not following. And he's full of grace and he's full of forgiveness and he gives us second chances. But we want to be a church that hears God's voice and then follows when he whispers in our ear in everyday life. When we hear through his words, his teaching on sex and marriage and money and relationships and family and work and so many different things. We want to be a church that's attentive to the voice of Jesus because we know that he's good and has good things for us. So what does it look like to have Jesus at the center? We love his presence. We're amazed by him. We live with this fear of the Lord and we listen to him. And we come truly alive when we do that. I just want to finish with this little story. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, himself tells uh, the account of a, a pastor friend who was visiting uh, a convalescent home as part of a, a placement he was doing. And in this convalescent home or hospital, uh, his friend meets this 89-year-old lady called Mabel. And uh, Mabel is uh, not all that well. She's blind. Uh, she's drooling. She doesn't have uh, control of her muscles in her face. She's got this massive hearing aid on. She's basically deaf. And she's been there for 25 years. And uh, this pastor went into this hospital week by week uh, to do some visiting. And he noticed there was something different about this lady, Mabel. Despite her challenges and the challenging environment that she was in, she had this joy and she had this peace. And uh, this pastor asks Mabel, what does she do all day? And she just sits there. She can't read. She can't hear very well. What does she do all day? And uh, this is how she responds. She says, I think about my Jesus. And the pastor says, I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I said, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks wouldn't think, would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And she starts to begin, uh, she begins this, to sing this song, this old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad, for he's my friend. 
And Mabel, even despite her challenges, and many people would look at her and think what has her life really got to offer, had found what we're all longing for, really. She had found life in all its fullness, and it was found in Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.